0: never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, Our journey this morning with the topic of what is love is something that human beings really can't fully describe with words. And so, Lord, we just simply ask that you would teach us this morning, that you would reveal to us what true love is. We pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen. What is love? This is the third part of our series entitled Top Questions You Asked Google, and one of the questions was this, what is love? It sounds simple enough, but honestly, I had the hardest time (laughs) coming up with what exactly the answer is to that question. However, from authors to poets, to musicians and lyricists, everyone has their take on what love is. It's not a new question. However, it remains a question because genuine, pure love is rare to see and hard to find. So I've scoured the internet, of course, via Google, (laughs) to find some answers. Here's what I found. When my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. Rebecca, age eight. Love is when you go out to eat and you give somebody most of your french fries without making them give you any of theirs. Chrissy, age six. I think you understand that one. She's hitting something deep there. Love is when your puppy licks your face after you've left him alone all day. Marianne, age four. Love is what makes you smile when you're tired. Terry, age four. Along with our little philosophers, some of our greatest poets, poets, some of our greatest philosophers, some of our greatest leaders have chimed in. Dr. Maya Angelou, she says this, love recognizes no barriers. It jumps hurdles, it leaps fences, it penetrates walls to arrive at its destination full of hope. If you find it in your heart to care for somebody else, you will have succeeded. Martin Luther King, Jr. said, love is the greatest force in the universe. It is the heartbeat of the moral cosmos. He who loves, he or she, is a participant in the being of God. Wow. Some deep thinkers there. And I think all of these individuals are onto something. So what does scripture say? The scriptures don't simply identify love as an act or a feeling. First John 4, 7 and 8 sums up the definition of love as a being, as God himself. Beloved, it says, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. God is love. Is. That word is is very important. Because it changes, it's not that God simply has love, it's not simply that God shows love. It says God is love to be, to be something. That means you embody that idea or that element in its totality. Actors and actresses do this all the time. They seek to embody a character in its fullness perfectly to the T. The late Heath Ledger in the movie Dark Knight, he won an Oscar playing the part of the Joker because he embodied this psychotic, crazy character so well you would believe that he was the Joker. And the preparation... They call it method acting. But really, the idea behind this method acting is the idea to become. To fully embody in its totality what you are trying to portray. Look at it this way. If I say, Michelle is a cat, then what I would be indicating is that everything Michelle does is cat-like. Whatever Michelle does is precisely the way a cat would do it. I would walk or creep like a cat. I would talk like a cat. Meow. I would eat like a cat. I would clean myself like a cat. I fight. You know how a cat fights? really funny to watch. Like a cat, I am a cat. So if I say, God is love, then that means that what God speaks, what God thinks, what God feels, and how God operates is the very embodiment of love. Now with that perspective, go through and read the Bible again. You might come to some interesting conclusions. But the Bible doesn't stop its explanation there. It doesn't stop there. In the letter to the Corinthians, Paul addresses a number of issues that were happening within the church body. Believers were having a difficult time getting along with each other, and they seemed to have forgotten their calling as Christians. There were divisions in the church, too many cliques. People were practicing immoral behavior. They had confusion with their practices of people praying and and ministering in different languages. People were being treated like lower class citizens at the Lord's Supper, at communion. Nothing about their practices indicated that they were born again Christians or that they were different from the culture around them. And so Paul basically reminds them that they are the body of Christ. And God's body doesn't work in opposition to itself. In fact, God's body, like our physical body, acts like one unit, works together, it moves in harmony. And so Paul uses a poetic form to show believers what their ultimate desire should be. And what it looks like to operate as the body of Christ. And so, as the body of God, who is love, what exactly does that look like? He begins the poem this way. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, This is what the body of Christ looks like in complete working harmony. This is what individuals should look like in complete working harmony. In fact, this is actually what God looks like. Because God is love. God is patient and kind. God does not envy or boast. God is not arrogant or rude. He doesn't insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but he rejoices with the truth. God bears all things. God believes all things. God hopes all things. God endures all things. God is eternal. Look, the Bible is saying that whenever you embody love, whenever love is manifest in your being, you are being like God. You are being like your maker. You are being exactly who God created you to be, which is a manifestation of his love. I read it earlier. Martin Luther King Jr. said, he who loves is a participant in the being of God. He hit that right on the nail, right on the head. Uh, Ellen White says something powerful about this in the book Patriarchs and Prophet, and she's giving a commentary on the, uh, the story of Jacob and Rachel. And she, this is what she says about love. She says, true love is not a strong, fiery, impetuous passion. On the contrary, it is calm and deep in its nature. It looks beyond mere externals and is attracted by qualities alone. It is wise and discriminating, and its devotion is real and abiding. I love that. I think many people already have an idea of what love is, or at least they're able to identify what love isn't. I think the real reason why people may be asking Google the question of what is love is because they haven't clearly seen it. Because if they'd have seen it, they'd know it. And God's people haven't really embodied this message we haven't really shown something countercultural to the world around us. The civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s was one of the clearest manifestations of what love in action looks like. Why do I say that? This was the philosophy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It says, True pacifism or nonviolent resistance is a courageous confrontation of evil by the power of love. In some commentary on King, it says King was both morally and practically committed to nonviolence. He believed that the Christian doctrine of love, operating through Gan- Gandhian, the Gandhian method of nonviolence, was one of the most potent weapons available to oppressed people in their struggle for freedom. King's notion of nonviolence had six key principles. Now, the civil rights is something that I want to study even more because there's so much. But if you didn't know this, there were six principles that the civil rights movement operated under. Watch this. Here's the first one. One can resist evil without resorting to violence, hard, very hard. None of these are easy, by the way. None of these come uh, naturally. Second, nonviolence seeks to win the friendship and understanding of the opponent, not to humiliate him. Now, y'all better pray for me, (laughs) because the the easy tendency is to spite someone when they've made you feel a certain way, right, and humiliate them, not befriend them. Give them a little of, uh, you know, a taste of their own medicine. Third principle, evil itself, okay, evil itself, not the people committing evil acts, should be opposed. How do, you, how do you oppose evil and not an evil person? Fourth, those committed to nonviolence must be willing to suffer without retaliation as suffering itself can be redemptive. Wow. I think of the Christian martyrs burned at the stake, and how Christianity spread as a result of their sacrifice. Again, love to read it. I understand it. But could I be put on a chopping block? (laughs) God help us. Fifth principle, nonviolent resistance avoids external physical violence and internal violence of spirit as well. The nonviolent resistor not only refuses to shoot his opponent, his or her opponent, but he also refuses, he or she, to hate him. I'm not going to hit you back. I'm not even going to hate you back. The resistor should be motivated by love. In the sense of the Greek word agape, which means understanding or redeeming goodwill for all humanity. This is tough. The list just keeps going. The sixth principle of the civil rights movement is that the nonviolent resister must have a deep faith in the future, stemming from the conviction that the universe is on the side of justice. You gotta look to something better. And you gotta believe and have faith that that can be grasped. I think of all of these uh, now historical events and tragedies that happened during the Civil Rights Movement. I specifically think of the Little Rock Nine as the first nine African American young ladies and, and men went into the first uh, desegregated high school. They were the source of the desegregation. But before they went in, they couldn't just go in. No, 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 no. The leaders of the Civil Rights Movement were like, no, we can't just send you in. We have to train you in methods of nonviolence. We have to, we have to show you how to love through your behavior, through your words. So they went through this Rigorous training before they could step foot and de- into, into their new high school. Amazing. These were the principles at the heart of the civil rights movement. Christians, we shouldn't be tired of hearing about the civil rights movement. I know you we talk about it a lot. February comes around. We really should be talking about it all the time, because it's American history. But we shouldn't be tired because it was a movement rooted in the principles of Christ and it produced the fruit of change, positive transformation. Its principles are exactly what you and I believe if you're a Christian. Whether you're black or white, regardless of what ethnicity you are, if you're a Christian, The civil rights movement embodied precisely what we claim to hold true. These principles actually sound a lot like the life of someone Christians should be well acquainted with. All of them. If you went through all the principles, you could pinpoint pieces of Jesus's life, Christ's life, and see that he was the model for this method. Hebrews 12, 2 says this, one of my favorite verses, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher or the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, future, endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus had a deep faith in the future and what the world could be, what you and I could be. And that's what Took him to the cross and kept him on the cross. And then resurrected on the third day. His faith in the future was so deep. It was so deep that look at Romans 5, 8 says this. It says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, wait a second, Christ didn't die when things were at their best. He died when things were at their worst. Because a demonstration of love breaks down a thick wall of hate and allows light to penetrate. If you ask me what love is? I would even say this. Love is supernatural. Love is power. Love is life-giving. Love is redemptive. Love is honest. Love is truth. Love begets love because love is transformative. Love is an eternal entity that creates change. Love is God. And God sends a message. Ellen White says in manuscript number 49, she says this, she says, "Hanging upon the cross, Christ was the gospel." You can find that in Desire of Ages as well. "Hanging on the cross, Christ was the gospel. The gospel is a message of transformation. The gospel is a message of love. The Bible says that by beholding, we become changed. By beholding God, who is love, we become changed into that very same image. God's manifestation of love on the cross changes the hate in our own hearts. At least it's supposed to when you comprehend the depth and the height and the greatness and the expanse of God's care and love and desire to see you better, then you get it. Then you get it. When Jesus came to the earth, scripture says that Those who dwelt, according to Isaiah, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Jesus came to the earth as a human being, as a baby, in the space of time where darkness was at great heights. Even religious leaders were lost. Everyone, the Bible says, was in darkness, grave darkness. And the way that Christ penetrated that dark night of evil was with a power, a force that was countercultural to the kingdom of this world. Christ didn't exa- didn't fight the world, not with fists. The world did fight him though, with their fists. But he overcame it by the power of love, of goodness. He kept Giving good, you hit harder, he loves harder. You spit more, he speaks words of life. You hit with a cold fist, he opens his arms with a warm embrace. You tie him, you nail him to a cross, and he stays there. what does this mean for me? What does this mean for you and for me? What this means is that in order to impact change for good in this world, we need to be willing to get a little uncomfortable. We also need a miracle. (laughs) But let's talk about this uncomfortable. (laughs) Daryl Davis, who is an African-American musician, he goes around and so far he's convinced about 200 people to leave the Ku Ku Klux Klan, the KKK, and other white supremacist groups. You may have heard of him. And so interviewers, they went to his home in Washington, D.C., and as they scanned some of his rooms, they found that in the back closet he had an assorted variety of Ku Klux Klan colored robes and hoods that he collected. And he said, look, the philosophy that he lives by is that anger must be channeled into positive actions like peaceful protests and political advocacy. The method that he uses to fight hate, (laughs) you would think it's crazy, but we heard it in the principles of the civil rights. What he uses, his choice, his weapon, is friendship. He uses friendship to dismantle hate. He uses relationship to dismantle Hate. Nonviolence seeks to win the friendship and understanding of the opponent, not to humiliate him. Why does this work? Because love is relational. But it's not easy to do. It's not easy to do. Pray for a pastor, because it's not easy to do. We're we're held to very high standards. But I'm telling you right now, I am very human. If you cut me, I will bleed. (laughs) And this isn't a standard just for pastors. This is a standard for Christians. This is a standard for humanity. For anybody. You want to change the world? Start loving. You want to start loving? (laughs) You better ask God. (laughs) It's not easy to do. There's an ex-racist, an ex-white nationalist. His name is Derek Black. And he was a promoter of alt-right ideology. He credits himself, among others, for infiltrating modern-day politics, specifically the Republican Party with alt-right ideology. I almost said theology, and I think I would still be right. He says, he says his work manifests itself in the 2016 elections of the United States. Scary. This was his story. He was raised a a prodigy of white nationalism. And he was pulled out of his elementary school to be homeschooled after his parents thought he was surrounded by too many Hispanics and Haitians. He was trained in racist rhetoric and hate-filled ideology. And he became a public racist figure early on in life. At 10, he started his own webpage. On such topics, until he gets old enough, he goes to college, goes to a multicultural college, where eventually somebody discovered his identity on the internet. He was a public racist and a white nationalist. He had kept his identity hidden for a time, but he was discovered. This gentleman, Matthew Stevenson, who was an associate of his, lived in the same dorm. He was an Orthodox Jew, the only Orthodox Jew in his dorm. And so Matthew, who had known him in passing, decided that instead of ignoring him or confronting him about his racist beliefs, he was going to include him. He figured he probably never met a Jewish person before. So he invited him to a Shabbat dinner at his place, and it was the only social invitation that Derek had received since everyone had discovered who he was. That was a long, significantly <laughs> a decent amount of time. No one mentioned white nationalism at the dinner. Matthew said, Don't mention it, act normal." And that first night, only a few people showed up to Matt's dinner initially. People were like, I don't want anything to do with that. But Derek, he kept coming back. Week after week, he was quiet and he was polite, he wasn't aggressive, and people began to feel less threatened by him. And so the Shabbat group, they would they returned to regular numbers, Hispanics, blacks, atheists, Christians. They would all meet together on Sabbath on Friday night. Although everyone was suspicious initially, especially Matt and Derek both suspicious of one another, the orthodox Jew and the white supremacists developed a friendship. And this friendship was the catalyst that led Derek Black to reevaluate the principles he'd been raised on. He liked his Jewish friend. He liked his black friends. He liked them. And these kindling friendships helped him to see the humanity in all people. And it led Derek to renouncing his white nationalist ideology. Why did this work? Because to love is supernatural. And even more, to love an enemy. You are actually allowing a stream of divine power to dispel darkness. Love is transformative. Love is God. Martin Luther King, Jr. said this, returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Only love can do that. And so may God help us in the struggle to not only love one another, but to demonstrate his love in the here and now. Amen? Amen.